are listening to the INCJ podcast, conversations about international criminal justice. Hi, everybody. Welcome to an INCJ broadcast and YouTube on Aphantasia. At INCJ, we want to give people a conversational opportunity to explore a wide range of topics. And this is a first for us two very different colleagues from the criminal justice world who both have aphantasia. We hope that listeners and watchers will find this interesting and thought-provoking. We're going to pass the lead on different aspects of this topic between us and just see where the ideas take us. If you want to find other discussion items, you can find us at criminaljusticenetwork.net or on Twitter at INTCJ Network. The title of this podcast is Exploring a Fantasia. Thank you very much for joining us and listening. So let me hand over to Jackie Burrows to start our conversation. Hey, thank you, John. Um, well, first of all, possibly I should introduce myself a little bit. I'm a senior lecturer in criminology at Sheffield Hallam University. And uh, I guess the pertinent bits of my history beyond that are that my educational um, practice background are a little bit more around uh, various psychology jobs within the prison system. And I'm also a qualified probation officer. Uh, so I've got quite a, a passion for psychology. And I'm one of those people that's come into criminology a little bit kind of sideways, Um I'm not an expert in what we're going to talk about. This is very much a kind of speculative chat um, from two people who kind of have this personal experience and have been reading around it. But I guess the first thing we should probably do is uh, just clarify what aphantasia, aphantasia, I'm not sure we've fully uh, worked that one out yet. Um, just to explain a little bit about what it is. Um, so I first came across this not through any of my psychology reading or anything else that uh, I've been doing. I actually came across it through uh, the comedian Richard Herring, his his podcast and him chatting about it. And I'm also aware it's been discussed in, in other podcasts by other comedians. Um, so no such thing as a fish. It's also popped up there because some of those people have aphantasia as well. And what we're talking about is essentially having little or no mind's eye, so cannot visualise. And although it's been known, talked about for um, quite a while now, it's only really named in 2015, so suddenly there's been this surge of people becoming aware and talking about it. I mentioned it to other people and they kind of go, oh, yes, or they're kind of, what the hell is that? And what we are talking about uh, is maybe... 5%, that's, I think, the kind of upper end of people I've seen affected, but maybe like 1% of people who are really, really fully mind blind. And if people want to think about that, maybe one of the things you can do is just visualize, try to visualize um, the face of someone that is close to you, or maybe that their whole body, kind of think about the detail you've got there, the sharpness of the image, the colour, whether you can imagine them moving, uh, if you've got their full body, can you imagine them walking and so on? And I know that when I try and do those things, I have got virtually nothing. So it's not entirely nothing, but it's pretty much that there is nothing in my head. So even for people I'm ultra familiar with, really close to, I have got virtually nothing in my head. And if I shut my eyes, it's even worse. And people will say, do that to try and help you. 
and if I shut my eyes, I've just got nothing but you know those swirly patterns that we we tend to get. Um, and and when I talk about this to other people, that's often the thing that seems to trouble them most: that idea that I can't even visualise people that I'm I'm close to. So obviously, um, I've been thinking about this a lot, uh, and like I often do, anytime I come across something interesting, I start thinking about the um, implications for the criminal justice system potentially. Um, that's what happens a lot with uh, things that I find interesting. I've also been thinking about myself a lot and, and what it means for me. Uh, so lots of thinking. That's where I always go because a kind of curious kind of person, uh, arguably over-reflective sometimes. Um, but I've been thinking about that a lot. And I also wrote a, an article for Probation Quarterly, which is how, uh, John, I understand you first came across me. So I kind of just speculated a little bit about what the implications might be for criminal justice in that or just kind of making people aware of it, thinking about the assumptions we sometimes make about people's inner worlds. You came across that. Do you want to just say a little bit about okay. how you got in touch? So I ought to say who I am. Um, yeah. my, my name's John Scott. Um, my background is that I was a probation officer uh, and I ended up uh, eventually in the Home Office as uh, Head of Public Protection uh, and did a variety of senior civil service jobs uh, before I then became a consultant on uh, things like uh, international justice reform and, and, and human rights. Um, I did not find out that I had a fantasia so i even pronounce it differently to jackie so although we're similar we're very different everybody so just sort of make a note of that um uh, until i was 64 so um uh, presumably people who know me always thought i was a bit unusual so this might be an explanation uh, but i didn't didn't find out about this until much later on in life um and uh a, a, a friend of mine said, oh, there's this article uh, you must read. Uh, and so I contacted Jackie direct with an email saying, uh, I think we've got something in common, sort of, shall we meet and chat? And in exchanging emails and then having uh, two or three Zooms, we thought, well, our conversation is really <laughs> both fun and of real interest to us. Perhaps if we have this conversation in a more public setting, other people would also find 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 it interesting. Um, I'm wondering if we, or so you found out about it just by reading some comedian stuff. Oh, it's one of his podcasts. Yeah, he interviews uh, different guests, um, but he mentioned it because he had it, um, yeah. and it seems to me a lot of people are finding out about it. Certainly initially through uh, sort of less formal channels, although there are obviously a lot more kind of more formal things the BBC doing. Um, things covering it now well i've i found out that i was different to other people when i was asked to lead um a series of meditations at church and um i read english at university and i always thought the concept of the mind's eye was just a lovely image a metaphor because when i, I i'm probably more extreme than jackie i have absolutely zero uh ability to visualize so whether with my eyes open or my eyes closed i just see black the swirly stuff yes but complete black and i do not dream visually either so um i do not think in pictures i think only in ideas 
So, so how did that go for your uh, your enjoyment of reading, therefore, with your degree and so on? <laughs> I know that I get really frustrated if something's got pages with a visual description. I'm like, get to where something happens, somebody says something, some something. Okay. Well, uh, I um, read it uh, and used the the language i was interested in imagery i was interested in pictures that people were trying to draw i was interested in the connectivity and the structure so uh i i enjoyed the skill of the writer but i wasn't trying to create a film in my head so i've got a, a really good friend who as he reads a novel like creates a film so he's sort of like creating visual sequences as he reads a novel now i wasn't doing that so I'll give you an example um you know, you hear people go to see a film and they say, oh, I hate the the, the film that's uh, based on a book because it wasn't as I imagined it. It spoiled the book for me. And I thought, well, that's stupid. It's just somebody's version of the film. But I didn't have any pictures in my head. So it couldn't, the film couldn't spoil the book. And I'll give you another example of something that shocked me. You know how people say, well, just count sheep and you'll go to sleep. But well, because I couldn't imagine sheep jumping over um, a fence or through a hole in the in the wall or something, well, that was that was a stupid way to try to to get to sleep because I couldn't create pictures in my head, so I couldn't get to sleep that way. So even though other uh, I knew these ideas and other people, but I never actually thought that I was different to anybody else uh, until, as I say, in my sixties, I was asked to to lead a series of uh, different types of meditation. And there were some meditations that I could do very easily as an intellectual discipline. But of course, visualization as a form of recreation, as a, as a, a meditation form of meditation, I could not do. So I thought, well, I better read up about this if I've got to lead a meditation exercise based on this. And it was like a, uh, a really shocking, self-revelation that you know 99 of the rest of the population genuinely could recreate pictures in their head so i'll give you a, a shot i if i close my eyes i cannot see a picture of my wife or my children i can't recreate that in my head um and people are really shocked when you say that to them but i just don't have that mm. ability um and in my reading as part of this discovery. Um, and I recommend if people want to find out more about what it's like to have uh, aphantasia, there's a bloke called Blake Ross, who's the co-founder of uh, Mozilla Firefox. Um, and he um, found out that he'd got aphantasia in his young 30s and has done a fantastic um, Facebook uh, entry on this. It's like an article. And it blew his mind that other people could visualize. Uh, and and you, who are fantastic, take it for granted. So, so enjoy the skill, is what I would say. So that's 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 how I, I found out about it, Jackie. Um, and uh, because we made this connection, uh, we've found similarities and differences, haven't we? And, uh, and it has had an impact on our lives, I suspect. Can I ask you what your reaction was? Because mine was first, like, full-on curiosity. I need to reflect over my entire life and, and work out what impact this has had. 
partly also feeling a little bit stupid that I hadn't realized earlier, but also I kind of experienced a little bit of a sense of loss, I think, and jealousy of other people. How, what was your reaction? Well, um, I wasn't, uh, I was just, I was surprised I'll, because you tend to assume that the way your brain works is the way everybody else's brain works. And that's, a bit of a shock because of course I knew that that isn't true. Um, I have two extremely dyslexic sons, for example. So I know that um, putting sequence together in people's brains, you know, can be messed up. Uh, so uh, I know about uh, that not everybody's brain works the same way. And hey, presto, uh, one of my two sons is also aphantasic. So uh, uh, and we did some rapid testing to see if uh, any of my grandchildren are, if either of my parents are. So we we we, we look really quickly, and only one of my blood relatives looks as if they are aphantasic, and that's uh, my older son. Um, so we did a uh, checked out to see if any of my friends had this experience, and none of them do, um, and. Uh, so, but I wasn't, because it hadn't, it hasn't seemed to be a disadvantage to me. Uh, so give you an example, Jackie, I was always described as the ideas guy. And of course, I think I've developed alternative ways of learning, alternative ways of thinking, and I've never been blocked. So if there was a problem, I was the sort of person that was used in the group to think, well, come up with an alternative. And I guess that, um, so for example, um, uh, uh, some aphasics are awful at directions or, or getting, but I'm quite good at maps. I'm quite good at getting myself out of a problem. So it is, it is strange, and I don't know how that is, but uh, it looks like my brain found alternative ways to handle problems. Um, and say, for example, you said about reading, you know, I, I read English at university. Uh, and I love books, I love novels, I love poetry, I love imagery, but I don't recreate pictures in my head. I think I enjoy the ideas in books, uh, um, and I also enjoyed the word pictures because actually they they compensated for that. I couldn't see the picture in my head. I enjoyed the skill and the recreation uh, that the author was was conjuring up i like that mm, i have a similar thing like, i like i like ideas being conveyed to me neatly i like use of language i like i enjoy words but it is very much that i am enjoying the words and and no visual yeah well but but funny enough in poetry which you could say is the densest most intimate form of of capturing ideas and feelings the um some uh, I think that that intensity I perhaps enjoyed even more than maybe the the, the word picture film rolling film of a novel. Uh, I enjoyed poetry as well for that reason. So it, it could be that um, uh, you find a way around a particular uh, way that your brain works. And as I say. <laughs> The first sixty-four years of my life, I hadn't got a label for this, and I didn't. I didn't know that other people weren't the same. What I did know, 
I'll just give you this as a, as a sort of a lay example. I, I, I do a lot of sport, you know, and I'm pretty good at sport. You know, I could turn my hand to pretty well everything. And coaches would say, visualize this. And I couldn't. So the fact that they would often talk about think your way through this, see it in your head. And I thought that that was, um, uh, and I would use it as a, do it as an intellectual exercise, you know, break uh, some sporting activity down into steps. And I could do that, but I couldn't visualize it. So I instead had an idea of, I took the idea of muscle memory. So doing lots of practice. And so you got it into your muscles rather than into your pictures. So I would see things as, as, as muscle memory rather than pictures in your head. Mm, I used to do something a bit similar, I think. Um, so obviously, yes, if I could physically practice, yes. But I used to do mental rehearsals that were more like trying to imagine my body doing something. I couldn't, obviously, I couldn't see it see it either. And I really struggle with saying, where, where do you imagine yourself in the next five years? Probably try to see it. I, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't do that. Mm. There seem to be people... Uh, talking about the potential for different sorts of aphantasia and links between uh, other neurodiversity and uh, and that kind of thing at the moment. And I did wonder if some of the the things you've talked about are kind of uh, potentially related to that. You said you're quite good at di- directions, for example, and so on. And I know I'm the way my memory works with this is I have no no visual memories of anything, but I kind of have a, a, a vague spatial awareness in my memory of things that have happened, a vague experiential awareness of things that have happened and kind of whatever facts I can store at the time it's happening, I will retain that. But I do, I kind of find that my memory is substantially impacted but in, in kind of quite specific ways. But it, it does, I, I feel like I've got very little memory of my life be, because of this, because I can't visually uh, recall anything. How, how is it for you? Uh, right. That's, that's again, quite hard to answer. Um, you know, I said, I think, uh, I think in ideas, I think I remember in experiences. So I put together, um, because uh, I can't see a picture, I put together feelings, um, happenings, uh, who said what, uh, where we were. So I don't see a flash of a picture. I build up um, an experience. And I think uh, people ask me, well, I, I mean, because I, I do dream, but I think I dream experiences uh, and places, but not the picture of the place. A sense, a sense of place rather than a picture of the place. So I think that's the compensation. So I get a lot of information. It's a bit like, for example, in a novel, you get a lot of information on the page, but the uh, only in children's books, you get a picture of it. So I get a lot of information about an experience. And that's what I remember, Jackie, I think. So if I'm, uh, so people say, gosh, you remember a lot about that. Because I suspect that if you have a visual memory, then that's so strong, then that's what you hold on to. But I don't have that. So I've had to work to remember other things. Mm. I think that's how I get through it. I find it really difficult. It's one of the things that has particularly uh, interested me about me and my life. And I, I do kind of... 
I take a lot of photos now, especially now that's easy, uh, obviously much easier than it was when I was younger. I take a lot of photos, but I also uh, I've kind of been reflecting on my slight obsession with lists. And I think it's because I feel like my life hasn't really happened unless I'm photographing it or, or ticking off things on a list. Like I, I love uh, hill walking, mountaineering, that kind of thing. But I have to have photographic evidence or a, a specific list of mountains that I've ticked off for it to properly feel like it's happened. And even then, I still feel a little bit disconnected. Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm the same. I, uh, in the family or with our friends, I'm the one that's taking the photos. <laughs> I take loads of photos. Um, uh, I, I have lists to be organised. Um Maybe you were just twenty first century before your time, Jackie. You know, sort of <laughs> getting the getting the video rather than having the experience. Um, and I, uh, I'm not sure. I take I take I take photos, um, not instead of having the experience. I think I mean, I, you, because being in the, if being in the moment, I think can be a rather uh, rather important thing because if you can't hold on to a picture you've got to intensify your experience of else what else is happening so um for example i did quite a lot of acting as a young person and um uh really concentrating on where you were in the scene helped me remember my lines helped me um put uh, effort into doing it the part well um and i suspect that taking that into life is also rather important for me um but uh, let's talk about learning because um you know preparing for exams did you find that hard oh yes <laughs> is that a sore point <laughs> uh, yes i i really struggled and i I know one of the reasons I was very grateful for the advent of computers is, is it's aided how I, I learn. So for exams and things, uh, I, I, I struggle to me uh, remember things, but I also struggle to organise them in my head. And if I only had a tiny bit of scrap paper allowed to me in the exam or something, I felt like I, I couldn't organise my thoughts and I certainly didn't really have time to organise uh, my thoughts particularly well in an exam exam environment so I used to memorize entire essays to try and regurgitate um, and I, I've met somebody else who also has very little uh imagery going on in their heads and they they said they did the exact same thing as well so that's one thing I did but I'm also aware that the value of computers for me is um if I'm doing something that involves material I'm super familiar with like if I'm trying to plan a lecture or something now on a topic I, I have a reasonable degree of expertise in I can kind of start planning that in my head because I'm familiar with it and I can see connections between it and so on but if I have to uh, if I'm doing a new qualification or something I'm learning new things I have to do a thing that I call oh this is gross but I call it vomit on a page I like have to literally shovel my ideas out in front of me so I can start organising them outside of my head because I can't visualise them and and do that working out. I have to get it in front of me, be able to actually see it. 
to do that. So that's two of the things that I think are probably directly linked to my aphantasia is my weird approach to exams and my approach to at least trying to organise new information, especially if there's a lot of it. I'm wondering if personality comes into this a bit, because um, you almost you got it. You had to get it out and then shape it. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Um, I was a bit different with exams in that I sort of took the took the line, and it, it depends a bit on what subject you did. So I did arts. I wasn't really very good at sciences because I couldn't hold on to facts. You know, I couldn't, didn't have any, you know, photographic memory. So that's at the other end of this spectrum where you could, you could look at this page and sort of see it again and reproduce it in your head. So jealous of those people. I mean, that's, that is respect everybody out there that can do that. But just bear in mind that Jackie and I cannot even see headlines to remember. So, we have to had to find another way of doing stuff. So, what my approach to exams was: uh, you've only got, let's say, forty five minutes to write an answer. So, uh, work out what the most likely questions are going to be. Work out what the topics are going to be, and have three, maybe four, good things to say on each topic. And then go in there and give a really good go at those three or four things. So my approach was, you can't possibly learn the 750 things about this topic. So go and get the four really good things and then be creative in the in the exam. That's essentially, so from A-levels onwards, that's how I tackled it. I think you're probably right that there's other factors at play here about how we respond to this and enact it because I, I do have high levels of anxiety certainly higher levels than it sounds like uh, you ever experienced and I, so to me the option was you need to learn everything just literally learn everything cover off every base and then that will be okay well it's not ideal yeah but it hasn't done you any harm has it <laughs> don't I honestly I think it probably has I'm oh I, I certainly did worse at exams than I did any other uh, kind of type of assessment and I think well, you can worry then that that reflects how clever you are or your ability when actually what it reflects there's a lot of people with various issues know is it arguably only reflects your ability to regurgitate information right and uh, bear in mind that um I, I mean, I could be a huge loss to science <laughs> because I, I thought very early on, you know, I dropped biology because oh, I really liked it. I thought, mm, you know, learning a whole load of facts isn't really isn't isn't really going to suit me. So I went sort of I did um, I think I did geography instead, you know, those sorts of things made those choices. Um, so if you lean towards stuff that isn't just about personality but is also about the way your brain works so i could articulate ideas and ideas in the art subject suited me so it's, it's you know it, it it is a bit to do with with i guess the confidence to to go and say you know what i think about this poem or what i think about this 
um, uh, aspect of the Industrial Revolution is important, and I show it's important by writing about it well, um, was, was how I tried to get through my education. But one of the things, perhaps, um, Jackie, the people listening and thinking, well, how do you find out um, – uh, so people think for themselves about whether they've got any aspects of aphantasia. Uh, I think there's something called the VVIQ that people can think for about themselves. Could you perhaps um, get people to consider how they could um, test themselves? That example I gave uh, early doors was kind of based on that. I mean, some mm. people uh, just like to pick something very simple. Uh, if they're having a chat with friends, for example, so sometimes people just want to pick a very basic thing like an apple and then just compare what they've got in their heads. Uh, so thinking about how sharp are the lines on it, uh, how bright and colourful is it? Is it a bit smudgy? Is it a bit grey? Can you rotate that image in your head? Um, with that particular questionnaire, the idea of uh, thinking about people's faces and whether you can actually uh imagine their gait when they walk and that kind of thing that's taken off that and um i think we'll provide a, a link uh, to that uh, to go with uh, this recording uh, so people can have a little look at some of the items that are in there and uh, the explicit kind of framework for answering which is basically the degree of clarity with which you can see the different things that suggested um, but it's usually about picking something that's familiar or that most people could visualise and then just seeing how you go with that. And as you've suggested, you've got absolutely nothing. And when I try and visualise an apple, a family member, it doesn't really matter. I have maybe got the faintest idea of the, just a wet, it's more like a feeling that I'm thinking about those things. I can see virtually nothing. I might have a sense vagueness of colour but it kind of feels like it's right on the periphery and I can't look at it and I, I, so there's nothing there but it is arguably more like a continuum so there will be these people who are super awesome amazing vivid worlds in their heads that just sounds uh, kind of mind-blowing to me so there will be people at that end of things but also people in the middle kind of well yeah I could see some stuff it's quite nice thanks but it's not hyper uh full of color and vividness and, and all that stuff but they're also not like us with a kind of empty head going mm, no nothing nothing there yeah. yeah one of the things that um i was advised to do when asking children is to uh to get them to imagine a tractor you know because that's sort of like an everyday thing that's an imaginative creative thing and you know uh even three or four year olds know exactly what a tractor is um and um not to describe you know, can you see a red tractor but say right close your eyes can you imagine a tractor and uh, i've got seven grandchildren and they all could and say now where is it uh oh it's uh it's, it's in a field and what sort of field is it and what colours the tractor, and who's driving the tractor, and uh, and has the farmer got a hat on? And honestly, it was quite extraordinary how uh, one one child was saying, "Oh, he's got a got a flat hat on uh, and a check shirt." I mean, you wouldn't believe how um, yeah. how precise <laughs> this visual imagination was, and but they all could have different colours. Um, uh, and and it was it was 
as re- the, the, the creation of the picture was as real. And this is granddad thinking, I cannot do this. And that was that. That was the. Show. <laughs> that was it. Was lovely that they didn't have that disadvantage, uh, but their their visualization abilities were absolutely rock solid. And as I say, out of the seven, pretty well all of them had medium to high visual um, visual visualization abilities, which is strange, isn't it? Okay, um, I'm wondering. Uh, do you think it would be? Good to move on to think about what the implications for criminal justice might be, Jackie. I mean, sure, but this obviously is very speculative. And I'm curious to know, you know, if people are listening to this, kind of their, their take on things as well. But I'm kind of aware that I had some uh, personal uh, kind of concerns, uh, but also uh, it made me start thinking more widely about other people in the, the criminal justice system and and so on. So the, one of the first things I was very aware of is there's a couple of things happened in my life that have made me worry that I, w- I was going to come to serious harm. Um, and looking back on those, I, I didn't really do much about it in terms of the criminal justice sense. But now I've started reflecting on the aphantasia and so on. Looking back over those incidents, I would be especially concerned about how credible I'd be seen as an eyewitness to those because my 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 memory of it just doesn't work like a lot of people. And I think if obviously if that assumption that everyone thinks the same, um, we already have false um, kind of understandings of how uh, eyewitness testimony works and how people's memory work. A lot of um, people still seem to think they work exactly like video cameras when actually people's levels of suggestibility and so on are, are much higher. I'm sure I'm saying things that a lot of people are already aware of anyway. But then if somebody like me comes along and and gets asked about detail, I have none. So in, in the things that uh, happen to me, I have a sense of space sort of a bit. I have a sense of movement uh, for some of those things. But one of those uh, incidents, I got grabbed from behind. So I have very little sense of it beyond uh, kind of knowing there was a space to this side of me and there was a building to the other side of me. That's kind of all I really had. But I do, even though uh, that particular incident was a long time ago now, I can still remember my decision making. So I still remember the mental checklist I went through of what I might be able to do about this situation. So that to me is very clear. But I I couldn't fill in any, any details. And I also wonder if, if people started picking me apart if I tried to identify someone. It's that kind of weird thing of, I know if I've met someone before, so I see them again, and I, I know I've met them before, but I can't describe them. So when I meet a classroom full of new students, for example, uh, and they're all chatting, I will probably remember pretty much everything they've said to me. I will often also remember where they were in the classroom in relation to me but they have no faces. So I start to have to build up factual profiles about those people to, to link the things they're saying to. So I really struggle. So if I was a um, need to be an eyewitness and people say, describe the face, what whatever facts I could retain from that incident, I might be able to repeat, but it, it just wouldn't be the same because I can't conjure up that image in my head to then try and start explaining that to somebody. So I wondered then, would people not take me seriously if I then 
identified somebody and said, yes, it, it, it's that person. Or if uh, under cross-examination, people start picking at the details. I mean, maybe that would be easier. Maybe I could just sit there and go, well, I've no idea because that's not how my brain works. Maybe, maybe that is actually a get out that would, would be useful. But I do worry about how credibly I would be seen. So that that's one of my biggies. And obviously, this is something that I hope never impacts you, but potentially could. How do you feel about that? Mm-hmm. Well, I know, for example, that um, because I've done some work about learning skills, that visual sequential memory is absolutely vital to spelling. You know, being able to put see things and then put them back in the same order is you know a, a breakdown uh, how lots of people spell. Now, bear in mind that my visual bits are completely non-existent. I'm quite a good speller. So how how is that happening? When I've got two really severely dyslexic sons, like one of them is so dyslexic, he's almost off the scale. So I just know how things are spelled. Now, don't ask me how I just know, but I've sort of found a way of getting that into my head somehow. Um, so uh, maybe it's just because it was so important to me to learn to read, to write. And one of the things that happened, Jackie, was that uh, because I was, for example, you know, in A-levels, if there was a word I wasn't confident about spelling, I would come up with another word. So I found I had, you know, big vocabulary or I would put an, you know, a subclause in, which would avoid me looking like I couldn't spell. So um, uh, your, your challenge was what sort of a witness would I be? I would probably be quite a good witness because of the experience thing. Because every witness can't paint the picture. They use words in a witness box. And I'm quite good at recreating the experience because I hold loads of information, but not the picture. So um, I I think I'm multi-layered about what's going on. For example, I did a lot of group work as a probation officer, and I was pretty good at knowing the complexity of what was happening in a group. And weirdly, I was quite good at names. I don't know how. I'm putting names to faces. I honestly, genuinely do not know how that happened. It's it's interesting that you kind of are, but don't fully understand that. I know I'm awful. I also know I I was very awful at spelling to the point where it perplexed my teachers. Like, how can you be so intelligent and not be able to spell? Yeah, it's because, because the problem with teachers is that they teach the way they teach. They don't teach the way children learn. And... Um, I mean, in a way, there's a bit of, say, you're working with groups in a, in a prison or, or working as a probation officer, say, finding out about how different people's brains work or how they see the world around them or how they experience life is really important before you can think about asking them to change, isn't it? Um, uh, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't have a clue about how my brain absorbed information. What I did know is I was pretty good at complexity. So I was always good at complexity, and one of the reasons was that one of my, you know, visualization being good at uh, seeing, seeing, was that I had to interpret that because I knew I was, obviously my brain was compensating. In fact, I wasn't going to hold any visual information 
for any time at all. So it, it sort of the brain found a way of storing important information another way. Extraordinary. It's quite exciting, really. It, it is. Uh, I think there's a lot of scope to kind of pick that apart a little bit and uh, and get a fuller understanding of just human beings in general. Certainly, you seem to have been quite creative in your ways around this without knowing it. Uh, mm. Like I understand a number of dyslexic people often are. You, you mm. just find you find a way, uh, hopefully. But it yeah. does it does make me curious. Like when you're talking to somebody who's uh, you know, you can make very important decisions over their life if you're a um, criminal justice practitioner. I, I worry about sometimes if um, people can't, don't have much sort of autobiographical detail to their lives, they may look a little evasive. Or if they don't have much descriptive detail in a particular event, they may look evasive. And I'm rather glad that I now know, well, that's how I might look. But it's not me being evasive. It is just a genuine um, thing that I, I don't have some of that detail. Yeah, I, I get that. And um, the, there can be um, mental health reasons for that, but there can also be structural, the way your brain works reasons for that. Um, and I mean, I think cognitive um, functioning is something that practitioners need to consider. So, uh, I mean, I'm going to be a bit careful as I say this, um, but you'll, I've already mentioned dyslexia, which is an umbrella term for a whole variety of uh, impacts upon ability to learn or put sequences together. And, you know, there's no single uh, causality. But if you think about uh, the prison population, they reckon up to a third of the population has some uh, form of uh, uh, impact on their lives because of uh, dyslexia. Now, um, that is much higher than the general population, isn't it? And you wonder whether there are other forms of cognitive um, impacts which uh, people working in the system need to be much more aware of, much more, as you say, sensitive so somebody might look, be looking really resistant to you simply because they don't understand the concepts you're using because they don't have the ability to understand the concepts you're using. Um, and, you know, maybe uh, whether someone can read or write is a relatively simple thing to assess, but the causality of that is often very complex. So, um, you know, the implications for criminal justice of cognitive differences is something that, uh, I mean, I took really, really seriously before I had children. Ironically, I was running a learning opportunities group in in Reading as a very young probation officer because I knew that that people who couldn't read and write, it was affecting everything, their ability to get jobs, um, their confidence. And then when I had children, <laughs> my oldest son, you know, was, you know, really, really super intelligent, you know, much higher IQ than I've got. And he was stalled at school when he got to seven. And he, he, he learned the reading scheme. He was the first boy to complete the reading scheme, but he just learned it off by heart. He couldn't read. He just learned the reading scheme. So, My dad used to teach me for reading, he used to cover up the pictures because I could, uh, I memorized all the words that went with the pictures. <laughs> right. So can you see how, how, 
in a way, and it's Alex is the one that's aphasic, uh, Jackie. So, so can you see how he would have looked up, got the triggers from the pictures, and learned the words at the bottom, and then because and fooled us all. <laughs> uh, so, so in a way, I suspect that some of the implications are about being way more sophisticated about thinking about the human being, the other side of the desk, and I think there are issues about. Uh, you, you started about what sort of a witness you, you could be, but it was also what sort of client is the person the other side of the desk? What mm. how's that? How is their brain working? How are they how are they seeing the world around them? How are they experiencing uh, the world around them? How are they interpreting it? It's just as big a question, it seems to me. So, uh, if you ask me what sort of witness I would be, I wouldn't start. If someone asked me a question, I wouldn't say to myself. Oh, I can see this in my head, and I will tell the barrister what I see. I would think of the question and answer the question to the best of my ability by recreating the experience. I wouldn't recreate what I saw. And I, over the years, I've got really confident that my judgment and my experience uh, and, and my reading of the emotions and my memory of where I was and what I was doing is good enough to be a valid witness. So if you said that you perceived a threat because you remember that you did it at the time, but you were yeah. asked to evidence that by what you were looking at. I would say I was walking in this direction uh, in front of me. I remember was this. And over that side was the other, and I would recreate the scene from from the experience, not from. So you have sufficient spatial awareness and spatial memory yeah. that yeah, you was, could do you could do that. Yeah, probably because I. But then you'd be relying yeah. maybe factually on. I remember the man was holding a knife. You may you won't be able to see that, but you've retained that factual yeah, information. Yeah. I would re I would retain the fact, not the picture. Hmm. But the other thing, Jackie, um, uh, 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 I listened to a podcast on the on on the BBC recently, which was because <laughs> anything I listen to on this is always really interesting because I've not heard it before. And uh, someone who's aphasic um, doesn't have to work certain things out; they just sort of know. So, which is longer, a squirrel's tail or a rabbit's tail? And I just say squirrel, whereas someone who's Oh, they have to think in their head. Well, I compare this and compare the other. They have to see the pictures. Well, are the pictures in scale? I just, I just, so just knowing something is weird. I don't know where it comes from, but there is an element that um, uh, there is a confidence, I think, that comes from uh, not having to rely on pictures. Uh, and that, that's that's all I can say. <laughs> so and then and then uh, I've never I, I've been obviously I've been an expert witness in courts loads and loads and loads of time, but I've I've never actually been witness to a crime, Jackie. So uh, if if it ever happens to me, I'll let you know whether I get shredded by a barrister. I was just thinking about the tail thing because I I listened to that um, BBC production as well, and I I have to say I was kind of like. I sort of just know the answer, but I don't like just knowing answers I, because I know how fallible human brains are. So I hate just knowing answers. And I tried to pick apart how I would check that I was right. And it was 
kind of like a feeling like I know I'm thinking about those two tails. I can't see them, but I know I'm thinking about them. And it's more of a, a feeling of the length of those tails. It's quite hard to convey what I'm kind of doing there. But I, there is a kind of process in my head where I can check what I think I know. But it's very hard to describe, um, I think, to other people. I think you're a frustrated scientist, Jackie. That's what it is. As as arts type, just just sort of let the emotion go. I know this. Well, I'm a social scientist, and <laughs> and the way certainly I was taught psychology way back was very positivist, and it was very quantitative methods and, and all that kind of thing. So I think that probably is still having a lasting effect on me, even though it's one of the reasons I've so thoroughly embraced criminology. Is it's been a big challenge to um, a lot of the ways I was taught psychology. In, in that case, respect. So let's 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 come back to the possible implications for for criminal criminal justice, because um, I'm not sure there's a lot of work being done on this, uh, and so maybe we need to ask questions rather than be too assertive. Um, do you think that there are any issues about causality in relation to criminality and aphantasia? I haven't seen anything, uh, as you suggest, specific to uh, the people we might be interested in, the processes we might be interested in. But I am aware there seems to be some things coming through around uh, kind of dampened fear responses, for example. And I, I wondered if there was uh, maybe some things we should be thinking about, about uh, maybe possibility of increased risk taking that kind of thing, but it's a, a, it's not very clear at the moment. I've also seen some stuff about empathy linked to aphantasia. It's not something that I, I personally recognised, but there's potentially something uh, there as well. And I did wonder, like I, I've kind of said, I feel a little disconnected from my life. If you don't feel connected to your life so well, then a lot of the like desistance-based stuff that we might be interested in, that we might think about. And even that that kind of idea of, oh, try and think about your future. It's less vivid to try and think about a future that you can maybe attach yourself to. Or if you don't have a strong sense of self because it doesn't, you don't have those vivid memories of your life so far and what's important, who's important. If that connectedness isn't there and it's very hard well, it's harder to build it potentially. I'm not saying everyone feels the same way I do, obviously, but there is some uh, sort of growing evidence that some of those things might be an issue. Then obviously for some of the people we may uh, work with as, as practitioners, maybe some of those things are going to have an impact on how we try to work with them. Um, it broke my heart when I, I started thinking about the importance of photography to me. It broke my heart when I thought about uh, people who went to prison without um, thinking about uh, sort of knowing they were going to go. And maybe they get there and your first night in cell and you you can't conjure up any uh, reassuring, relaxing images. Uh, you can't conjure up faces of your family members to try and have that connection. That must magnify any feeling of isolation if you don't have any like hard photographs to be looking at. Now, I appreciate like having hard photographs can be quite upsetting in a different way, but it must feel as that door closes, if you can't conjure up some of those connections in your head, as soon as you get off the phone to someone, as soon as you can't see them, there is arguably that magnified disconnect. 
and it, it I don't know if that is true of people, but it felt very painful to me to kind of think that that might be the case. And obviously some of the other things we've talked about would apply like, oh, how, how do you mentally relax if, if you're locked up with very few things around you? Oh, think of a lovely scene on a beach. No, uh, I can't. I can't count the sheep. I can't I can't do any of those things. So you might be able to teach them uh, or learn some other things like progressive muscle relaxation and that kind of thing. But your head, especially for somebody like me, so I have an overactive inner voice and I have nothing to distract myself from my overactive inner voice, which is very naggy, not very uh, supportive and helpful sometimes. I can't then remove myself with a lovely scene on the beach and I do I do think that there is arguably a, a higher level potentially of mental punishment um when we're talking about people who are potentially in prison but then some of these implications for how we might help them to manage that how we might uh, help them to think about a life that is different how we might help them to kind of work towards that so we're asking them to maybe work towards something they can articulate but not really see we might be asking them um to kind of build those social bonds but they'd be social bonds with people that you can't imagine when you're not around I think so I, that, I wonder how strong all that stuff would be yeah and so in a way particularly if you're being cut off say for example um by prison or by conditions attached to a probation order or something, uh, connectedness might be particularly difficult if you can't uh, imagine uh, or visualize. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to just explore with you is how um, uh, this sort of problem could be masked by another label. Um, because I think, for example, uh, ADHD, attention, attention deficit, it might just be that someone can't visualize. In other words, it could be that certain um, easier or better known issues, uh, like being on the autism, autism spectrum, uh, could get lost in that, well, this person's brain just doesn't work the way that you expect it to. So... I'm, uh, I'm not saying I'm anxious to challenge people who are in the criminal justice world, whether they're, uh, say, probation officers or prison officers or, or forensic psychologists, just to be aware of this possible other layer of complexity. And there are quite simple additional tests you can do. You know, if, someone, if people like us get through a significant slice of our lives before we find out about it. And is only, is it 2015 was the first time that this condition was even labelled? Although I think there was a 19th century uh, guy. There who, were discussions, uh, but the label came, yes, in 2015, as far yeah. as I understand it. So, and the I think it's the most beautiful phrase, your mind's eye. And of course, everybody, everybody seems to understand that, except me. I just thought it was a, it was a, it was a lovely metaphor. I still catch uh, myself using the language of visualizing. Uh, so I said, I'm, I'm just visualizing myself doing it. And I think I'm not, and now I'm aware I'm not visualizing myself doing that at all. Yeah. <laughs> one, one of my friends whose father was a uh, professor of philosophy, uh, one of their best family jokes was, I see, said the blind man. 
And they all round their family table over a meal, fell about laughing when anybody said, oh, I see, said the blind man. And they thought this was the biggest joke ever. So I joined in the laughter. But of course, the 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 pun on I understand, but they were seeing it with another layer, which is that I see in my visualization head as well. So they they were getting another layer of joke. <laughs> so, you know, I got there 65 years later. Um, I'm thinking, are there any issues about interventions uh, that we need to consider in the criminal justice field? Whether, uh, because you talked about pe some people feel quite angry when they find out that maybe they've missed out. Do you think some of our um, clients or people that we're working with might feel a bit cheesed off <laughs> they find out that they've got this oh, I don't know. that was quite a personal reaction me feeling a little bit uh like a sense of loss and 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 so on i think uh consider levels of frustration like mm. i can imagine if you're trying to do group work and you're uh for example trying to encourage some of the relaxation techniques or some mindfulness stuff um one, it might kind of undermine the credibility of the people trying to teach it, I suppose, because you kind of just sat there going, why are you teaching me these things that I can't do? This, and why is everyone else doing it? This is weird. They must all just be pretending. Mm. Or you get frustrated because you do believe the other people can do it, but you can't and you don't understand why or why it isn't helping you. So I wonder if that uh, kind of greater awareness of, of just general diversity and actually listening and, uh, and trying to help people articulate uh, what they're going, uh, sort of experiencing, because it's quite difficult. In, unless you've got the language to explain what you're experiencing, it's very difficult to explain it. So if you're a person who, like I've talked about spatial memory um and that kind of thing. If you don't have that vocabulary to explain this, it's quite difficult to articulate your point of view. If you don't know the word aphantasia and aren't aware it's a thing, it's quite, you don't even know there's something to articulate, let alone how to articulate it. So I, I rather like having these conversations because it kind of, I hope, helps equip people uh, to maybe just challenge themselves a little bit and to rethink the world a little bit and maybe be aware that we are still busy making assumptions, sometimes even the best of us, but also to potentially help uh, equip people to explain their own experiences so that we can we can better share them. But I'm also aware, certainly when I was thinking through the things that had, um, happened to me previously, um, the incident where I got grabbed from behind, because I had so little um, in my head about that, it was very, I couldn't, even at the time, I couldn't properly see uh, the person who grabbed me because they were behind me. I had very little apart from this vague spatial memory, um, this vague uh, kind of, sorry, no, the more concrete uh, memory of what I went through in my thinking steps. But I'm also aware that when other stuff has happened to me, I have re-experienced them later on. So more like a trauma symptom. But it was very much the sense of movement coming towards me. Now, I think I've been spared um, some full trauma responses because I don't like get a, a visual flashback. But I do get the sense of movement towards me and the slight feeling of panic. Um, and what I found was although 
it wasn't overwhelming. I couldn't do anything with it. So if we are potentially asking somebody to uh, sort of uh, visually restructure, rescript something, I'm, I'm assuming there's probably going to be uh, implications for that because certainly it's not something I can do. So I, I kind of kept having this sense of movement coming rapidly towards me in a sense of panic, but I didn't feel I could, I could process that anymore. I found it very difficult. Uh, I'm aware some interventions for trauma are sort of, I know people have been talking about this. I don't know if it's been fully resolved, but they involve you uh, visualizing and the, uh, some of the eye movement interventions are based around you uh, visualizing the, the trauma as it happened to you. I think people are talking about other ways of making that work, but I'm not sure how effective um, they're saying they're going to be. And I would also just be aware that um, some things like uh, mindfulness and even some of the basic apps for mindfulness, they kind of say, visualize your um, thoughts moving away like buses. All, all those kind of things feel like they're, they're cut off from me for uh, processing trauma, for processing uh, anything, really. So I again, I'm speculating. I am aware there's a growing evidence base that uh, kind of suggests um, that at least some of those things probably are worth thinking about a little bit more. But it, it, it does trouble me. And I I wonder if it would, you know, if, if some helpful practitioner is trying to suggest some of these things to people, if they just going to feel like failures, they'll, just, they'll feel frustrated or they'll just look at their practitioner like, you idiot what what on earth are you talking about and just going oh, this person knows nothing hmm. so it's it, uh, being going going back to uh the idea that uh if a teacher is teaching a dyslexic child the way she or he teaches an ordinary child then they're never they're not going to get anywhere you have to teach the way a child learns and in a way uh, group workers or uh, forensic psychologists or uh, you know people working w with people who have, a, have offending issues you've just got to you've got to make sure you're hitting hitting the right notes with the person on the other side of the table or in the group okay i'm wondering if we should try to move into whether there are any positives about this um because uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna start off by saying a positive for me uh i uh people perhaps will recall that i've done quite a lot of heavy end work with public protection uh and uh, i had to look at some really really awful um files to do with uh, sex offending and the extreme ends of violence and things uh and i can say i'm not haunted by those images because i don't remember them can't see them so um there are um that's a, that's an advantage I had in being the head of public protection is that uh, uh, I, I can't see those images. So that's that's a positive. <laughs> um, it's it's one I I, I recognise. So obviously I've I've read a lot uh, of horrific uh, accounts of harmful behaviour, and uh, I often remember the words, but I've never, obviously never, ever created uh, a visual version of that. I've also uh, looked at autopsy photos and crime scene photos. And again, um, they they don't stay with me. Um, I might be haunted by uh, a description of somebody's emotional reaction or something that may stay with me a, a little bit more. But um, 
Absolutely. Just, uh, I'm with you on, on that as a as a positive, potentially. Um, and I guess that's why some people may may be concerned it might be linked to empathy. But I don't feel that it's it has particularly hampered my empathy. I've all, always tried to pay attention in a moment. Uh, I've always, always tried to ask questions and listen to other people. So I don't I don't feel like it, it it's hampered me necessarily in in that regard either well, so I, well, i'm seeing that as a positive yeah. yeah and also i remember you saying to me in an, uh, another conversation jackie about you felt it helped you live in the moment better and and i that made me think because because i knew i wasn't ever going to take a picture away i was i was looking and thinking and and feel trying to feel what was happening so maybe uh i was trying to absorb more than just to take a snapshot and get a picture so i think i was probably trying to operate on more levels than just get a picture so maybe i'm wondering about living in the moment meant i was trying harder <laughs> subconsciously to get in tune with the moment through things other than just seeing it that's lovely to hear because I have to say I need to slightly correct you. I actually really struggle to live in the moment. <laughs> right. Well, that's my that's my oral so, memory. Sorry, my about oral that. my oral memory completely letting me down. Rats. Well, it's something I'm actively working on along the oh, lines you're talking about. Um, because <laughs> I, I went, so I've always struggled with it, uh, particularly because my overactive inner voice distracts me. Uh, a lot and so on it isn't very restful or peaceful um but also when I first started thinking about this I went through a, a little bit of a phase where I just went there's no point in immersing myself in this moment certainly with a beautiful scene for example because I won't remember it or at least I've got the photo so that's as much as I'm going to remember it I think it's a little bit different when you uh, are interacting with actual human beings rather than a beautiful scene um, that's maybe a little bit different, but it's certainly something I've been trying to trying to work on is being more present and trying to enjoy, yeah, the, the actual lived moment uh, a lot better because I'm aware it's something I'm very bad at. I am also aware potentially uh, a benefit of this, although I've uh, sort of expressed a feeling of loss knowing that all, other people have this big, rich world that I don't appear to be uh able to participate in is the idea that i can also see it as potentially being a bit overwhelming or distracting i don't know it's quite weird trying to imagine having that imagery and it sounds wonderful i'm kind of sort of understanding it as this immersive amazing thing or wonderful recollections of a of a, a moment that you really liked although potentially also of moments that you uh, really did not like but I can also imagine that that might, even in a positive sense, some of that stuff might be quite distracting or overwhelming or, or feel cluttered, at least relative to what's going on in my head at the moment. Well, it's interesting you talked about the inner voice because I also have this sort of running commentary going on 100% of the time. Uh, and, and it may be that the brain sort of gives a primacy to different sorts of source of thought and recollection and reflection. I understand um, some people have no uh, visual imagery in their head. They have no uh, sort of clear inner voice. 
and I do I find that in particular t- uh, difficult to try and perspective take with. Right, we're all different. So on that note, let's move on to thinking about well, what next? So we've attempted this conversation. I think we've been quite exposing of 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 something that lots of people know nothing about so let's to keep the conversation going uh we've we want to say that there may well be both in the uk and internationally because incj wants to reach out across uh, boundaries and across language boundaries and cultural boundaries we've got the feeling there may be pockets of knowledge and experience elsewhere that would be really good to connect about aphantasia because it can't just be <laughs> the two of us operating in criminal justice that have this experience and would be really interested in uh finding out what's going on and if there's anybody else thinking about this and we'd be very happy to use the incj and you know drop us a line so just as i wrote an email to someone i'd never met or heard of this person called Jackie Burroughs, and we've, we've got in touch and we've, we've caused each other quite a lot of uh, merriment to find out how similar and different we are. We haven't yet taken to exchanging uh, photographs of different experiences, but my guess is that WhatsApp will start happening, that'll start happening on WhatsApp to see if our photos are similar. Um, but perhaps if you'd like to get in touch with us through uh incj and our, our chat line that would be really good because maybe in a, a couple of months or a few months we we could have an open forum like this particularly looking at uh whether there are implications for this sort of cognitive exploration uh for practice and thinking uh, about we ha- how we tackle uh criminality and how we work together and think together in that way so that's something about what next. Uh, Jackie, do you want to say if there are any take-home messages? Yeah, I mean, part of uh, one of the things I'm very con- um, concerned about is that if criminal justice practitioners are engaging with this, uh, depending what part of the world you're in, potentially, um, you you may be going, well, that's interesting, but uh, thank you so much for bringing another thing to my attention that I'm supposed to kind of be thinking about in my practice. Thank you so much for that. I'm barely managing my own caseload. So I'm I'm kind of aware um, that, that that may be a bit of a thing. Um, but I guess overall, my main thing is I'm constantly uh, fascinated. I love being surprised by the new things um, that we find out about the world and about human beings and how they function. So I, even if, uh, you know, you kind of, oh, I can't really do a lot with this at the moment. I, I love being reminded that we should always try and avoid assumption. I like being reminded that curiosity is worthwhile. And although I'm still kind of actively trying to find some more positives to my aphantasia, other than the fact it's made me feel a bit special, maybe, um, that we that probably are some and we're going to see more of those things emerging. Um, just that idea of gen, generally valuing diversity. So for me, the most important bit of this is here's a thing that maybe we can have some concrete, meaningful exchanges about, ask questions, maybe start providing answers for but just that overall idea of be curious, listen to other people, swap stories, 
try and avoid assuming that just because your brain works a certain way that somebody else's does and maybe yeah trying to actively find the benefits uh and the excitement and the interest of people's different brains um i guess that's the main thing i want to think about and it's arguably maybe a bit more approachable for a lot of people who are under duress with their caseloads and and things at the moment but we are going to uh, provide some resources aren't we uh so maybe a mixture of academic stuff less academic stuff stuff you have to read stuff you don't have to read you can just sit and quietly watch maybe um so hopefully uh, some people will find a moment to engage with some of those if they're interested. Uh, I love talking about this stuff, so I'm happy to hear about other people's experiences, their own things they've been thinking about, things that might concern them about how they interact with others, any of those things I'm interested in. And we will uh, obviously include um, a link to that test that we've been talking about as well. So you could, if you wanted to, have a little reflect about yourself and where you seem to sit relative to other people as well. But uh, yeah, I just want to kind of reiterate that message of being curious, enjoying the world. Um, and I will be very happy to talk to other people about this particular thing or indeed many other things if wanted. That's what I would like people to take away from this. Thanks a lot, Jackie. So if you think that this uh, condition, if that's the right word, wasn't even given a name until 215. And I suppose we can all ask, well, what's been missed or what's been misunderstood about how we think or the decisions that have been made? Um, it's it's good to be uh, curious and to ask questions. And so it's now time for us both to sign off. So thanks very much for listening. Uh, please stay safe and hope you can join us next time so it's goodbye from jackie and me and thank you for listening uh, podcasts from incj are available on your normal provider through itunes and google for example under incj podcasts thank you very much and goodbye you have been listening to the incj podcast conversations about international criminal justice to find out more go to our website at criminaljusticenetwork.net or follow us on Twitter at INTCJ Network.